Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 17 through 25 this morning of Matthew chapter 4. Before we read that, why don't we pray together and ask God's blessing on his word. Our Father, we, uh, we do come before you uh, to hear from you. We know that we, we need your word. We need your word to teach us and correct us and rebuke us and train us. We need your word to, uh, to fill our hearts that we would meditate day by day, not on all of the messages that we get from the world around us, but that we would meditate on your word, uh, that, that it would be our joy and our delight, that it would be our, our sure guide in life. And Father, we, we just pray that you would speak to us now, uh, that you would open our hearts by your spirit, that you would use your word uh, in us, uh, and that we would uh, draw more closely to you uh, in, light of, in light of your word. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 4. Verses 17 through 25. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Christianity is not a spectator sport. The, the call of Jesus this morning is to follow. It's not to sit on the sidelines, but to follow. It's, it's to be active. And that's a little scary and, and sometimes uncomfortable. Because, I don't know about you, but I like controlling my schedule. I like determining what I do and what I don't do. And I don't like others telling me what to do. But of course, this is Jesus. Matthew has introduced him as the king. Jesus is the one who was born king of the Jews. He's the one who has come as the, the son of God, who's come to rule the nations. And so as king, he has the right to get intrusive. He has a right to call us to follow him. Now, our, our outline this morning, you can find it in your bulletin, and uh, it, it begins with the foundation of following Jesus. We'll see that in verse 17. We'll hear the call to follow Jesus. Then we get into the, the, the nitty-gritty of following Jesus, the details. 
what that looks like, and then the goal of following Jesus. So we have the the foundation, the call, the nitty-gritty, and the goal. First, the foundation of following Jesus. Some people tend to think that uh, following Jesus is simply about moral reform. Uh, I simply need to start doing better, start being better. And and some people think, well, because of that, I don't know, maybe you've heard non-Christians say this. They say, well, I could never follow Jesus because I'm not that good of a person. I could never go to church because I'm, I, you know, because of the life that I live. As if, right, they, they wouldn't go to church because they're not a good person, as if they wouldn't go to a hospital because they weren't healthy, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but that is the way the world often looks at Christianity. It's just about being good and doing good. And, of course, that misses what following Jesus is all about, doesn't it? The foundation of following Jesus is not what I do at all but it's what Jesus has done. And so verse 17, Jesus begins to preach, and he takes up the message of John the Baptist. We've heard this before. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The foundation of following Jesus is first and foremost about what Jesus is doing. We enter into that, not through moral reform, but through repentance. But Jesus is the one who's doing something. He's the one who's bringing the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, as we've said before, is the renewal of all things under the rule of God. And Jesus has come as the king of this kingdom to renew all things and to restore God's perfect order to the universe. God created the world good. You may remember in the beginning, he he, he made it a place of joy, a place of life, a place of flourishing. But human rebellion broke the peaceful order of the world. It brought chaos and sickness and disorder and death. And Jesus comes to renew all of that, to renew all things by dealing with the source of the problem. And he comes to set things right by paying sin's penalty. Through his death on the cross, he comes to bear sin, to bear the curse, and so remove it from this world. Of course, then he rises from the dead which shows that death really has been conquered, that the power of sin has been defeated, that the curse is undone. And so Jesus is setting up this new order, this new kingdom. He's beginning a new age, a new world, as it were, not an age of sin and death, but an age of resurrection life in the Spirit. That's what it means when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, we do enter into that through repentance, right? We, we see ourselves, how we've been a part of making a mess out of this world. We own that behavior before God. We stop making excuses, right, for, for our actions, for our thoughts, for our hearts. And we confess that to God, right? That's what it means to repent, to see and own and confess our sin to him. And we do that because God and Jesus has shown his willingness to receive us, to receive rebels back to himself through King Jesus, So we turn from this old order, this old life of sin and death, and we turn to Jesus, who is renewing all things. That's the foundation of following Jesus. It's what he has done and our entering into that, not because we've gotten our lives together, but through repentance, right? Apart from repenting and receiving forgiveness, of course, there's there's no uh, following him, is there? 
Right? If, if you try to follow Jesus apart from repenting, your following will tend to be an attempt to earn his love right? or to gain the kingdom by your own reform. But of course, we can't do that. And Jesus doesn't call us to that. He doesn't call us to moral reform. He calls us to see our immorality and to believe that he can renew us by his spirit, just as he's going to renew all things. So do you see, from the very start, do you see your own personal rebellion against God, right? That, that you've been living your life not for him, but for you. Do you see that that rebellion deserves punishment? And have you owned that for what it is? Or are you still making excuses for the way you live? Have you confessed that to him? Do you see Jesus, right? Do you see his work of renewing the world, beginning with his death and resurrection? Have you rested in his work rather than your own? Have you rejoiced in his bringing the kingdom? This is the foundation of following him. This is where it starts, but it's just where it starts, right? Entering the kingdom is the foundation of following him. But, you know, when you become a citizen, uh, it's never an end uh, in a, of itself, right? One enters a city or a, a state or a country uh, in order to live as a citizen of that city, state, or country, right? We enter the kingdom in order to live as citizens of the kingdom. So we're going to move quickly, right, from the foundation of following Jesus to the call to follow Jesus. Now again, as I said before, this, I think, is the scary part. It's scary because, because I like running my own life, because I like being in charge of what I do and when. It's scary because I, I like having the freedom to set my own agenda. And I'm afraid of what Jesus might ask me to do. And here's what Jesus says. Follow me. Jesus is walking by the sea in, in, in Matthew 4. He sees two brothers. Uh, had they met before? Some think they have. Some think they hadn't. That's really not the point, is it? He walks by. He sees these two brothers. They're fishermen. They're casting their nets into the sea. And Jesus calls out to them, follow me. It's really a rather radical call. Uh, apparently, rabbis in, in Jesus' day didn't choose their students. Rabbis didn't choose their students. The, cho the student chose the rabbi. But here, Jesus breaks protocol, doesn't he? He calls his disciples, follow me. And of course, he's the king, so he can do that. But, but he is breaking with the norm. And notice verse 20, immediately they left their nets and follow him. Then Jesus sees two more brothers, two more fishermen, and he calls them, and immediately they leave their boat, and they leave their father, and they follow him as well. Well, Jesus calls us, follow me. He calls us to make a break with whatever we were doing before. He calls us, in one sense, to leave everything behind and follow him. Now, our, our lives are consumed with following. We prayed about this a moment ago, didn't we? Uh, we, we, we follow um, music and movies and, and people and news and sports and politics and trends. We follow all kinds of things. Ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, what we follow the most is the, is the desires of our hearts. Right? They, we let them dictate the agenda for our life. Well, Jesus comes with a new agenda he, he says to, to repent of, of following the desires of your heart as if they were Lord. And I think if there's one thing, it's one thing I think about this often uh, as, a, as a dad, as a parent, there's one thing that we all need to get down is that our desires are not our master, right? They're not what dictate 
what we do, how we live. And, and, and Jesus calls us to repent of that with the words, follow me. Jesus calls us to break with our old lives. Maybe that's not physically, right? Uh, the disciples physically left their old lives. They physically left their fishing boats and their nets and even their own father. Well, many of us are going to stay in our families and we're going to stay in our jobs and we're going to stay in our neighborhoods. But, but these can no longer be what controls us, what, what, what dictates, what determines the trajectory of our lives. Right? Our, our priorities, our goals, and our, our tasks right, are, are now set by following Jesus. Even if, we, even if we stay in the same place, in the same town, in the same job, doing the same, essentially the same things, everything is now radically different because we're no longer doing them for whatever reason we were doing them before, to serve ourselves or to serve our boss or to serve our desires, but we are doing them to follow Jesus. And so everything will be different in the way in which we go about it, in the manner in which we approach life. And he wants our all. When he says, follow me, he doesn't say, follow me one day of the week. He doesn't say, follow me for a couple hours. He says, follow me. And the disciples got up and left. That's scary. If that's not scary, it's probably because we're not getting it, right? We're not understanding how radical that is. But here's the question for us, right? As we think about that call, Jesus called to follow him. And again, you know, maybe he's not calling you to leave your job and fly halfway around the world. But the question to, to really understand uh, the, 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 the impact of this call is, is what, would, what would you have trouble leaving for Jesus if he did call you to leave it, right? What, what do you love? What do you trust? What do you serve so much that you couldn't think of leaving it behind to follow him? Just there, you're, you're worshiping that thing, right? You're putting that thing above him, just there, Jesus wants to challenge your allegiance to the world with, with the words, follow me. Right? What does your heart gravitate toward? What does your heart hold on to? That thing is your functional Lord, right? That's what you're worshiping. Jesus says, no, no, right? Let, let go, take your hands off and follow me. Well, that's the, the, the foundation of, of following him. Jesus has come to renew the world. That's the call to follow him, right? Follow me. Leave the world behind. Follow me. Focus on him. Well, what about the details? What about the nitty-gritty of following Jesus? When Jesus calls his disciples here to follow me, he's calling them to something specific, isn't he? he it's, it's not just a general call. He he. he he puts flesh on that. He spells it out. Jesus gives these fishermen a kind of job description. He says that they are to be fishers of men. Verse 19 says, Jesus says, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay, what does that mean? Fishers of men. Uh, well, he's saying this to fishermen. Fishermen who are used to catching fish. And he's saying, okay, now you're not going to catch fish. You're going to catch people. Jesus wants these men uh, no longer to draw fish into a boat, but to draw people into the kingdom. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean to, to be fishers of men, to draw people to Christ? Well, Jesus says, follow me, right? So, so, so what then does Jesus do, right? He wants his disciples to follow him. What do they do? What does he do so that they can see and follow? Well, verse 23, he does four things. Right? Verse 23, 
Jesus travels, he teaches, he proclaims, and he heals. He travels, he teaches, he proclaims, and he heals. Uh, First, he travels. He doesn't stay in one place, right? He's moving around. He's going throughout Galilee. We we see this later, don't we, in the Great Commission, when Jesus will call his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, right? That, That Jesus' mission is to a variety of people in a variety of places, And so he is, you know, he's not going far, but he's traveling throughout the region of Galilee, and he later will send his disciples out throughout the whole world. What does he do as he goes, as he travels, as he's going from place to place? He teaches, he proclaims, and he he heals, right? And we could sum that up really in, in two things. Jesus, on the one hand, he's verbally proclaiming the kingdom, and on the other hand, he's visibly manifesting the kingdom, right? So he's doing two things. He's, he's verbally proclaiming it. He's teaching in the synagogues, the religious gathering places, right? He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is constantly telling people about the kingdom of God, the coming renewal of all things. He's constantly telling people in, in one sense then that, that his father hasn't given up on this world, but that he has a plan to renew it through the son. But Jesus is also visibly manifesting the kingdom, He's not only talking about it, but he's, but he's showing it in the way he lives. Remember that the kingdom is the renewal of all things. So what does Jesus do to show that he has come to renew all things? He begins to renew people. Right? Verse 23, he heals every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus is, is manifesting the coming kingdom, the renewal of all things, by renewing people's bodies as a sign of something bigger. You know, it's important to realize that these healings are only temporary and partial. People often get confused here when they read about healings in the Gospels. Uh, They get misfocused here. They think that this is the end-all and be-all, right? And, And these people that Jesus healed, they eventually died. Now, the, the scripture doesn't say that, so I guess I don't know that as a, as a fact, but, but I haven't seen them walking around recently. You would think that if everybody Jesus healed was still alive, we would know it. These people eventually died. Which means that the the healing, right, they were healed of a specific illness, but they weren't healed of the ultimate problem, right? They they weren't healed of the total corruption caused by sin. This temporary and partial healing was really just a sign of the eternal and complete healing that will come. It was a sign of the kingdom. It was a sign of the renewal of all things. We, we begin to experience this renewal now internally by the Holy Spirit, but externally we will only experience it fully at the return of Jesus, right? That's, that's the day that we long for, the day of the renewal of all things. So Jesus isn't here, as we, as we read Jesus healing people and healing diseases and casting out demons, he, he's not, in one sense, building the kingdom by these healings. That's not what he's doing. He's manifesting the coming kingdom. He's, 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 he's letting a small glimpse of the kingdom break into time and space so that we can see it, so that we can have a sense of what God is going to do in the future, right? We can have a sense right now because we see him healing, we see him bringing renewal, temporarily, partially, in the hope of the fullness of that renewal to come. This is how Jesus fishes for men. This is throughout the Gospels, isn't it? Jesus goes around teaching and healing. That's what he does. And and he, he teaches about the kingdom. He proclaims the kingdom. He manifests the kingdom through acts of service. It's actually interesting here, the word uh, translated healing in the common Greek of the day, it actually just meant to serve. 
And uh, it could mean heal when talking about a doctor's service, but it could mean lots of other things as well. It meant to serve. So Jesus is serving these people. How does Jesus fish for men? He speaks and he serves. He speaks about the kingdom and he serves them as a sign of the coming kingdom. Well, remember Jesus is teaching, he's calling his disciples to follow him, right? Follow me, that's his call. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? And so then the question becomes, okay, what is, what, how does this relate to us? What are we called to do? How does, this, how, does this, uh, how does this affect our lives? How does this apply? And Jesus here calls his first disciples, right? These are guys who are later going to become the apostles. Uh, in one sense, these guys are unique, and, and they, uh, they became fishers of men. The apostles certainly did that. They went around after Jesus' death and resurrection, and they, they called people to follow Jesus. They, they, they're teaching throughout the book of Acts, right? We have the New Testament, which is the teaching of the apostles. So there's a unique sense in which the apostles did this. The apostles healed people similarly to the way Jesus healed people, right? So, so the apostles did this in an utterly unique way. What, what about us? What about, what about us today? We're not apostles. Are we called to follow Jesus and become fishers of men the way that they were? Well, again, God doesn't call us exactly the same way as he called the apostles, right? Uh, we're not all called to physically leave our homes the way they did. We're not all called to give up our jobs and become wandering preachers, right? Um, but God does call us to speak and to serve as we have opportunity, Matthew, the book of Matthew is about discipleship. Matthew is, is, is almost, uh, many have looked at it as a discipleship training manual, right? Matthew is teaching us what it looks like for us to be a disciple. And so Matthew, as he talks about discipleship, he does mean for us to, to, to imitate the disciples to, when they do the right thing. He calls us to imitate the disciples, right? To follow in their footsteps, to hear the call of Jesus to us, follow me. He's teaching us what discipleship means. The point of Matthew is in part this enduring call to follow Jesus and become fishers of men. And we see this lived out uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament, don't we? In Acts chapter 8, uh, verse 4, there's this really interesting part in the book of Acts. Uh, just before this in Acts 8, uh, persecution happens and the people are scattered throughout all the regions of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, right? They're scattered all over the place because of persecution. And we're told in Acts 8, 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What's really interesting about this is if you read Acts chapter 8, the first few verses, who does that include? Well, that includes everybody except the apostles because the apostles are still in Jerusalem. They didn't leave, right? So when Acts 8, 4 says they go about preaching the word, who's preaching the word there? Everybody except the leaders, right? Those are the ones preaching the word. Everybody else is going about preaching the word. So that includes all the, all the Christians except the apostles in Acts 8.4. And of course, there, there are other places in the New Testament that call all of us to be ready to give an answer, isn't there? First uh, Peter 3.15 uh, calls us to always be uh, prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect, right? We're, we're all to be ready to give an answer for why we have this hope of the renewal of all things, this hope of the resurrection, this hope of, of being reconciled to our Father. Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, there's this call to be ready to speak in a way that's gracious, to walk in wisdom toward those around us that we can answer their questions. We're also called to serve, aren't we? We're called to serve. We're not only called to speak, we're called to serve. Galatians 6.10, which I come back to again and again because it's so simple and so straightforward. It says, so then, uh, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That verse could be really overwhelming. Let us do good to everyone. Okay, that's, right, that's overwhelming. But, but don't forget the first part. As we have opportunity, right? See what Paul is saying? Like, you look for the opportunities that are around you and then do good to everybody around you. Not everybody everywhere, right? You can't do that. None of us can do that. That's why there isn't one Christian trying to serve the world, right? God has a whole church, Right? He's given us all gifts, and each of us is called, as we have opportunity, to do good to all people. What this ultimately means is each of us, as we have opportunity, are to speak and serve. As we have opportunity. Uh, this, this doesn't mean, right, this could become a very narrow agenda of, of, of speaking or serving, right? It could mean, well, that, that we simply, we do street corner cold turkey evangelism, and that's our speaking. And, and then we, we go to the soup kitchen, and that's our serving, Right? And those two things are fine. They're, they're good. Do them. Right? But, but, that's, but it's not, we're not called to have a very narrow agenda of what this means. It may mean those things, but not necessarily and certainly not exclusively. It may mean serving your neighbor by, by helping them rake their leaves. It, it may mean talking with a coworker whose father just died. It may mean striking up a conversation with a total stranger in the coffee shop and seeing where it leads. Right? It will always mean being intentional and looking for opportunities, looking for opportunities to, to speak to people in need, most of all people who need grace. You know, who do you know around you right now? Uh, not, you don't have to, to go out and find new people. Who do you know right around you who needs to know the gospel? Right? How, how could you creatively get to, get to know them, get to love them, start speaking to them, build a relationship with them, and share Christ with them? What non-Christian do you, do you know who needs to come to know Jesus for the first time? What Christian do you know who, who needs the comfort right now of God's forgiving presence in his son? Right? Christians need the gospel too. We, we need to be evangelized every day. We need the gospel. Right? We need to hear the good news of God's grace again so that we can believe it and be comforted and be fed. So who do you know? Right? Who do you know right around you who needs to hear of God's grace in his son? Again, it always means looking for opportunities not only to speak, but also to serve people in need, putting others before yourselves, seeking to care for, for, for the needs of others. If you're part of a family, right, that might mean putting your mother or your brothers or your sisters first. Right? That's probably the, one of the hardest places to do it, isn't it? Right? To put your brothers first. That's difficult. It, it, it means looking to serve the people that you're closest with, the people that we often take for granted, really, Right? That's convicting. Uh, yeah. If you're part of a classroom, right, it might mean putting your classmates first. Do they have some need that you can supply? It may be as little as lending them a pencil because they forgot one. It may be as big as helping them study for an exam in a subject area in which they really struggle. Right? How can you serve people around you? How can you just love them, show them the love of Jesus? How can you do that in your workplace? How can you serve your coworkers, putting them first? It may mean helping them, even if it means that they get a promotion and you don't, because you help them on their project. 
while, while you could have been doing more work on your own. In your community, what needs are there that, that we can fill, whether big or small? What can you do as an individual? What do you need help, right? Is there something that you need to gather other Christians around you, some small group of fellow believers, so that you can, so that you can serve well together? Little needs, big needs, right? Jesus is calling us to approach life with a servant's heart, to speak graciously and to serve sacrificially in all of life, everywhere we go. You know, again, I mentioned the narrow agenda a moment ago that sometimes we think about this as, well, I just, quote, do evangelism at a specific time and a specific place, um, or I, quote, you know, serve in a soup kitchen or something like that. And and those things maybe are are hard to do, to carve out the time to go to a soup kitchen or to to get up the courage to to go out and, and stand on the street and talk to somebody about Jesus. Those things are difficult, but this is actually harder, what I'm saying. Because what I'm saying is that it's not just a, an item that you do. I'm saying this, this is all of life, right? All of life, having a heart to, to speak and serve those around us. And what stops us from living like this? Well, uh, there are lots of things that stop us. I think one of our biggest problems is fear. Fear. You know, there are lots of reasons that we don't follow Jesus in speaking and serving, but many, if not all of them, involve fear. And we're scared of what people will think. We're, we're scared of not knowing what to say. We're scared of giving up our time and talents and money and missing out on life. We're scared. We lack boldness. We lack the, the words. We lack love. Okay, so what do we do, right? If this is our problem if we lack boldness and lack words and lack love. If that's why we don't live like this, what, what do we do? How do we get boldness, right? How do we get the words to say to people? Uh, how do we get the motivation, right, to turn to the person next to us and strike up a conversation rather than finishing our paper, right, because the deadline is looming, right? Where, where, does that, where does that come from? Where does the boldness and the motivation to speak and serve come from? Well, thankfully, actually, this passage tells us. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Isn't that great? It's not up to you, right? Jesus says, come to me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. How do we become fishers of men? We come to Jesus, we follow him, and then he he makes us into fishers of men. He does the work in us so that we can be, be fishers of men in the world. There's, there's lots of ways this is true. I mean, think about just a couple, right? When we come to Jesus, we can, we can become bold, right? Because Jesus promises those who follow him that he will be with them always. So as I follow him, he's with me. I don't need to fear because Jesus is with me. And as I come to him again and again, I begin to actually believe that Right? Because we're so slow to believe that he's with us. But as we, as we come to him day by day, as we come to him and, and we pray to him and we talk to him and we read his word, as we come to him again and again, we begin to believe that he is actually going to be, be with us. And then we begin to live without fear because Jesus is with us. Or, or, or think about it this way. You know, so often we're afraid of what people think. Right? We're worried of what, of what their opinion of us is going to be. Well, Jesus has secured our reputation with the one who matters most, hasn't he? He's secured our reputation with the Father. According to the scriptures, when we come to Jesus and believe in him, we are declared righteous in his sight. And so I don't need to worry about what people will think when I already know what God my Father thinks. Now, the problem is we're more concerned about what people think than we are about what God our Father thinks, right? 
And so what do we need to do? We need to come to Jesus again and again, right? And, and let that precious truth sink into our heart that our Father in Jesus delights in us. Zechariah says he sings over us. You can't get more delight than that, right? That God our Father delights in us. He loves us. What does it matter what people think when our Father delights in us so much? Follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. Or think about it this. When we come to him, we can not only become bold, but we also find the love that we need. Right? When we come to Jesus and we see the Father's love in giving his Son, when we come to Jesus and we see the Son's love in dying for our sins and coming into the world and taking on human flesh and going to the cross and suffering and dying and going into the grave for us, when we see the Spirit's love in coming from Jesus to bring us the blessing and the life of Jesus, only as that love melts our hearts will we be changed to love others. We, we need to be changed. We, we naturally love ourselves because of the fall. We need to be changed. We need Jesus' love to melt our hearts so that we can actually love the people around us well. If you want to love others, you need to have a heart melted by the love of Jesus. Where do we get that? We go to him, right? We, we follow him. We go to him again and again. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. Here's one more way that as we, as we come to him, he transforms us. When we come to Jesus, we find the words we need. How do we do that? Well, it's only as we grow in our understanding and our personal application of grace to our own hearts that, that we will know how to share that grace with others. Right? I, I, we, I, I so often feel that my limitations in sharing the good news of God's grace in Jesus with strangers says more about my own pale understanding of grace and my own feeble application of grace to my own life, then, then it does say something about anything else. Right? The more you're able to receive grace and apply grace to your own life, to your own heart, to your own circumstances, the better you'll be able to specifically share grace with the people around you. Right? As you begin to see how it applies specifically to you, you'll be able to apply it to others. You'll be able to speak it in other circumstances. We need to come to Jesus, right? We need to, we need to drink deeply of his grace and he will make you fishers of men. Ultimately, of course, that means asking him to do it. It means asking him to change your heart, asking him to make you bold, asking him to give you love, asking him to give you words. In fact, Paul, interestingly, you know, Paul, Paul, the great apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter six, the end of Ephesians six, he asks for prayer. What does Paul, the apostle Paul, ask for prayer for. For what does Paul ask for prayer? He asks for two things. He says he wants the Ephesians to pray for him that God would give him boldness and the words to say. This is Paul, right? Now, if Paul knew that he had to pray and he needed others to be praying for him to give him boldness and words to say, who do we think we are that we don't pray for boldness and the words to say? We think we're better than the Apostle Paul. I know what to say. I can do it. I'm brave. No, right? We are scared, right? And we have no idea what to say most of the time because we don't pray. Pray, right? Go to Jesus, right? He will make you a fisher of men. Follow me, he says. Come to Jesus and he will, he will make us fishers of men. You can't work it up in yourself, right? I mean, you can try. You're gonna fail. It's gonna be really frustrating and it's only gonna make you feel guilty in the end. Skip that and just go to Jesus, right? Well, all of this uh, has a goal, right? There's a purpose. 
of following Jesus? What's the goal of all this? Verses 24 and 25 tell us. Verse 24 begins like this. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What's the goal? What's the result of Jesus' work? The fame of Jesus spread throughout the whole region. People came to hear him from all over the place. Giant crowds, right, from Galilee and and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, basically all over the place, came to Jesus. And and, and not just uh, Jews, but Jews and Gentiles alike, Galilee and the Decapolis beyond the Jordan, right, those were Gentile territories, not, they weren't just filled with Jews, they were filled with Gentiles as well. And so, so Jesus' fame spread not just to a variety of places, but to a variety of people. Jesus' fame is spreading all over the place. This is the goal, right? This is the goal of following Jesus, the fame of Jesus, right? His glory, his fame, his reputation, not ours, his. And, and, and we want to see Jesus become famous in Champaign-Urbana. That's our goal, right? We want to see Jesus become famous. We want to glorify him, We want to do that in our communities. We want to do that on campus. We want to do that in our workplaces and classrooms and and, and dorms and neighborhoods. But that's our goal, the fame of Jesus wherever we go. And, of course, the Bible teaches that one day the knowledge of his glory, the knowledge of his fame, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise, that this goal is going to be accomplished, right? It's not going to fail. God's glory, his fame, is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Which, if you think about it, think about that metaphor a second, for a second. That's, um, the, the, the waters don't really cover the sea, right? The waters are the sea. <laughs> so what does it mean for the glory of Jesus to, to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? Um, it means it's everywhere, right? It's in everything. That's, that's our goal, and it's going to be accomplished. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow down to him. We see that in the book of Revelation. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, that every knee will bow, right? This, this is the chief end of man, right? This is our great motivation. This is our great joy. This is the reason we do what we do. This is the reason we study hard. This is the reason we, we're faithful to our spouses. This is the reason we lovingly discipline our children. This is the reason we don't cheat on our income taxes, right? This is the reason we don't waste time at work. Uh, this is the reason we share the gospel with the lost and the reason we share, uh, care for those in need, right? The glory of Jesus. We want Jesus to be known and enjoyed in, in all of his glory, now, again, if that's not true, if your heart isn't there, if you're thinking, well, I get that in, mentally, I know I should want to see the glory of Jesus, and you know, when I'm here on Sunday morning, I do, but when I get up on Monday morning, I don't really care, right? Okay, okay, your heart needs to be changed. Where does that come from? You run to Jesus, right? You go to him, follow him, go to him. He will make you a fisher of men. He will change your heart so that you love his glory more than the glories of this world. Go to Jesus. Run to him until his glory grips your heart. Jesus has come to renew all things. Right? Drink deeply of his renewing grace. Join him in his work. Follow him by showing and telling his grace to the world until his glory fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we, we do want to see your glory. And we know that, that so often other things crowd that desire out. Other glories, as we look around at the world, other things uh, delight us. But Jesus, give us a, a, a single-minded heart for you and for your glory. 
Give us a, 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 a passion for that glory above all else until that passion drives us out, drives us out into the world to speak and to serve of your glory so that your grace is made known. The people are drawn to you, crowds from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.